Hello everyone, it's April 2nd, 2019, so this week we'll discuss spacesuits, or EVA suits to be more precise. One size does not fit all, and it just gets more complicated from there. So let's get the show in orbit, feel free to wear whatever, or nothing at all, up to you, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower, welcome to episode 204 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast, I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. What's up, guys? Oh, not much. I just found out you lost your phone, but at least you got a new one. Yeah, that was due. That sounds like a nightmare to me because I don't I don't know what I would do. I guess if I could replace it within a matter of just a few hours, I would be okay. But even then, yeah. it sounds terrifying. I would rather lose my wallet, I think. The thing that pisses... <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know, and that's kind of the point is I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to have to choose. But yeah, the thing that upset me so much because I, I mean i was really upset afterwards my partner kira was calming me down it had basically slipped out of my uh sports jacket when i was out at the bar mm-hmm. and then somebody must have picked it up and left with it because we searched pretty Oof. significantly but it was the thing that gets oh. me is it was a 500 hundred dollar mistake you know what i mean yeah. like i could have yep. stayed in and played final fantasy but my friend yep. texted me about going out i'm like sure don't be such a busybody. Yep. And as a result, 500 bucks gone. Oh, man. Uh, I I hardcore feel that. Like that <laughs> Thank you, Ben. <laughs> That's what you get for having fun. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That shows going outside in the world. It's terrible. Stay in, play video games. Yeah. <laughs> Although, to my credit, I've never lost a phone yet. So hey. Really? Yeah. You know, I don't think I've lost a phone either, but I've definitely cracked phones, uh, which is, it's always weird because like they crack when you least expect them to like the big the big drops and they're fine it's the little Mm -hmm. tiny ones where you're like oh let me just pick that back up and it's like screen shattered yeah i've managed to avoid that happily just because i got an otter box because i'm dropping things left okay yeah well if you have an iphone and you break it don't go get a third-party screen. Just pay the extra money if you can. Because I've gotten third-party replacements where I put them in my pocket walking out of the store and they cracked in my pocket. And I turned around oh, and wow. said, here, this sucks. The way the guy at the store put it is if you buy them online and you're getting them and they're selling, you know, packs of six, that's because you're going to have <laughs> to go through all six of them. <laughs> yeah. I've only cracked a phone screen actually just once, so I'm lucky there too. Um, that's because I dropped it face down in gravel. So that'll Ooh. do it. That'll do it. Yeah. doesn't matter if you have an OtterBox in that case, like... Like it's coarse mm. enough that you will crack the screen. Did you guys see that the passive safety system that somebody designed for uh, cell phones where um, it's got an accelerometer and when it detects itself falling, it deploys four little uh, I've heard of legs. that. I forgot all about it. What? Yeah. yeah. The only thing is that like if you drop it on your face in bed, you're going to lose an eye. But it was it was a really great looking uh, little system. I don't know how practical it is because it's probably a thick case, but that thing actually works. You just drop it, and then yeah, it turns into like a little spider. Yeah, it looks kind of creepy. Well, yeah, right. If we're talking about safety per added uh, millimeter, it's probably. Mm-hmm not as good as an otter box or just something rubbery but if you've already got all that space you could cram an external battery or something in there like there there are reasons to do that i don't know it just looks like a cool party trick to do you're like hey watch me drop my phone mm-hmm. and then watch it turn into a giant metal bug <laughs> so anyway moving on then to uh spaceflight history do we have any winners from last week's yeah we have exactly week? one winner congratulations ben heller yeah. Um, the clue from last week: If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear, does it still make a sound? And this week in spaceflight history, it's a short one, but it's April third, nineteen seventy-three. It was the launch of Salyut two, also known as Almaz one. So, if you're not familiar with the Salyut program, basically 
There was the DOS program, the Durable Orbital Station program, and that's those are all the salutes. And they realized, hey, if we want to uh, hide some military objectives, having a civilian program like DOS is a really great way to do it. So they piggybacked on the OPS system, the Orbital Piloted Station. And um, so some of the salutes were Almazes, and they were military space stations. I really like Salute. Something about it just feels good to me. It, they are very submarine-y. I like a lot of little space stations. You know, it, it's cool to have a really big space station, but it's also really cool to just like put a bunch of them up. There's also a really good video uh, on YouTube that I'll link to that was uh, Nova got permission to go film one of the uh, Salutes that's still on the ground. Hmm. Um, it's pretty cool. So Almaz is more or less built around a telescope. I mean, that's not true, but a lot of room was taken up by this telescope. And so it's a spy station. And so there's like one station that you can sit at and look through the telescope and you can rotate the entire station to point this telescope, which is kind of weird that it's not articulated, but if you're in space, it doesn't need to be right. And so you could sit with your eyes uh, up to a very Uhura looking view scope um, and then you have two joysticks on either side that you can use to point the station and a button to fire the camera. Since you have a person taking these photos instead of um, an automated system, you could uh, very easily target, you know, targets of opportunity and take photos at the discretion of the human. The other thing you could do is choose which photos to send back down to the ground, because back then, you know, bandwidth was a real issue. Today, it's not. Today, we can download huge amounts of data uh, on demand very easily. And so what they did to be able to choose what photos they sent down was they shot all the photos that they needed to. Then they turned off all the lights in the station pulled the film out of the camera or out of the, the telescope and put it in a, a developer kit. And then, uh, you know, they were able to turn the lights on and develop the film and do whatever. And then they had a projection table where they would actually put the film in and project it onto this table, flip through the film, decide what they wanted to send down. And then they had a video camera that would then record the projection table and, uh, and they would pick their photos that way which is super laborious but also like endearing in a way like the idea of developing film in space just feels mm -hmm. good in a, in a retro way a little orbital dark room that's really cool <laughs> yeah exactly so uh the second salute that flew was almaz one and the clue referring to something falling where nobody's able to hear it is in reference to the fact that nobody ever got to board almaz one it actually deorbited first so um it was launched on proton the proton upper stage put it into its final orbit then they ditched the upper stage and it would just deorbit after a certain amount of time but three days after they uh detached uh or, or deployed the station from the from the upper stage the upper stage exploded mm. um which you know proton upper stages are pretty good at exploding we've seen it happen a number of times uh throughout the vehicle's history so uh three days after separation it explodes 10 days later uh, you know, after rolling the dice enough times, uh, some shrapnel actually hit the station and tore the station to pieces pretty much. So it tore off both of its solar wings. Um, it also 
I believe blew off a panel. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure what, what actually was destroyed, but when they did forensics on the ground, cause they actually recovered some pieces, their first thought was that, um, one of the fuel lines actually, um, was hit or I don't know if they thought that it was hit necessarily, but they identified that one of the fuel lines had exploded and they thought that that was the primary cause. And then later on they realized, Oh, it was actually shrapnel. So I think that the, uh, the shrapnel tore off the solar rays and damaged the fuel, uh, the fuel lines and, and caused an explosion. Um, but yeah, nope, nobody ever made it to the station. So that's this week in spaceflight history. That clue makes perfect sense now. So yeah, kind of surprised no one else got it. <laughs> it it was a little out there, and I the clue for next week may similarly be out there, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. We'll find out. Ooh, and challenge. what would that clue be? So we have an audio clue for this week, and so. Next week in 1959, here's the clue. Um, in fact, most of the missions had a battery pack on the glove with a little lensed light out of the finger so they could see what they were doing. There you go. That's the clue. It's a good quality clip. Thank you. And that was next week in 1959. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there's your audio clue. And if you know what that's about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. In the news this week, um, well, we had mentioned last week that there was going to be the first uh, all-female spacewalk, and that didn't happen. Mm. Um, and this was to uh, replace some batteries on station. But there was some spacesuit sizing issues, it looks like. And uh, and we kind of have a breakdown here, or at least, Ben, you have a really... Oh, yeah. We're not going to do all this. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have some notes here that really break down exactly what's going on with spacesuits and how people yeah. fit in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, on the SpaceX subreddit, uh, or on their wiki, they have this great article where they keep track of every single core that we know about. Um, every Falcon 9 core. Uh, Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy cores. And... I thought for sure there was going to be a list like that for EMUs uh, on uh, on Wikipedia. There isn't. <laughs> it took me quite a while to figure out where all of these spacesuits are. Um, so there's a great article. Uh, it'll be linked in the show notes. It's a PDF. And it was written April 16th, 2017. And the title is NASA's Management and Development of Spacesuits. And it's from the Office of Audits looking at how NASA handles their spacesuits. It's pointing out exactly the problem that we experienced this week. But it it includes a list of all the spacesuits. So I copied and pasted them in the show notes. Um, If you're not familiar, the way that that EMUs, um, extravehicular mobility units, that's U.S.'s, uh, spacesuit. The way that EMUs work is uh, there are two serial numbers. I mean, there are probably thousands of serial numbers associated with each suit, but the primary serial numbers you'll hear are either a 3000 number or a 1000 number. Uh, the 1000 number is the serial number of the PLIS, the life support system, and the 3000 number is the number of the hard upper torso. Uh, actually, I think it's I think it's for the entire suit. Is this the three thousand? So the serial numbers range from three thousand and one all the way up to three thousand eighteen. We've only built eighteen EMUs, which is insane to me. You know, one of the best spacesuits in the world, and we've only built eighteen of them. I mean, it makes sense because they're super expensive, and they're also very expensive to get to their final destination on orbit. So there are a couple notable ones. Number 12, 3012, uh, was lost uh, in Challenger 
Uh, 14 was lost in Colombia, as was 16. Mm-hmm. You also lost 3,007 in Challenger. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. Because um, there were two, two for each. 3,017 was launched or was lost on the uh, uh, SpaceX's CRS-7 mission. Uh, there was a spacesuit on board, which really made that a, a, a huge hit. I mean, like, mm-hmm. that really sucks. Um, but the ones that are on station, we have six of them. Three, six, eight... 10 and 15. I believe the sixth one is number four, which back in April of 2017, it was still at UTIS, United Technologies Aerospace Systems. It was being certified, and then uh, I believe it was flown up there later that year. Originally, they wanted to fly it summer or fall 2017. I don't know exactly when it flew, but I believe it did, and I believe that's the sixth one. So the key restriction here is that these spacesuits have to fit very, very well. And in order to do that, you have to be able to swap out components. There are like 50 sizes for hands or something like that. There are, you know, the arms have a bunch of different lengths, I think like seven different sizes you can do. But for the hard upper torso, which is the most restrictive part, right? It's the it's the glove box portion, right? Mm. <laughs> it's, it's what you're having to put your body into. The hard upper torso only comes in three sizes, medium, large, and extra large. There's no small. And even with that range, even if you're inside that range, if you fall between two sizes, you're SOL. You can't use, you basically can't use a hard upper torso comfortably. It's just not going to happen. And we've long recognized that three sizes aren't enough. And uh, this um, this audit paper uh, from 2017 is very clear that this isn't good enough. Um, but, you know, we're strongly resource, li- resource limited. And if you can find people who can fit into those three sizes, you're going to do that. And you're going to stretch to put people who don't exactly fit into those three sizes, because being uncomfortable for eight hours is worth it if it means that you get to go to space and do an EVA. You know, I mean, as far as careers, as far as mission planning, it's just it's something that we're going to accept. And the issue here, I'm about to get higher up on the soapbox, (laughs) is that we designed these sizes and we designed them without putting a small size in there. And the reason that we did that is because when we designed them, there weren't that many people who needed a small size. And we've never gotten past that. We've never built a smaller suit. So the choice to to drop McLean from the EVA, I think was inevitable, right? If she doesn't fit in the spacesuit that we have, right? Because she originally wore a large on orbit. She decided it just wasn't doing it for her. She needed to go down to a medium. And we only have one operational medium suit. The choice between leaving the battery adapters exposed and taking time to to fix the other medium, which I don't know if we could have configured. I don't know how long it would take to configure it. Um, but taking a decent amount of time, the choice between that and keeping the EVA going and just swapping out another astronaut is the correct choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But where I start to get really fussy is the fact that we had to make that choice to begin with. So can you clarify, because I'm a little bit confused, so how many suits are there on station right Six. now? Two mediums, two larges, and two extra larges. And then you're saying that there's one of those mediums that is not operational right now? Correct. It wasn't prepped. It wasn't prepped, or it's just like there's something wrong with it? Like I thought, I only heard that it wasn't prepped. 
they could have prepped it, but it would have taken it would have delayed things. Yes. So I believe that only one of them is taken out of service, and that would be uh, three thousand fifteen. That leaked. It, right. It's it's the one that leaked on uh, Luca Parmitano, mm-hmm. and actually they. They might have actually flown that down to the ground. I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, so so one of the mediums was not ready to be put into use because it takes a decent amount of time to, to swap mm-hmm. these things out. So I believe it's operational. I could be wrong, but I believe it is operational. Oh, here we go. Uh, Delta Via 4.3 comes through. Let me just read this quote. Uh, the suit has three sizes of upper torso, eight sizes of adjustable elbows, over 65 sizes of gloves, two sizes of adjustable waists, five sizes of adjustable knees, and a vast array of padding options for almost every part of the body. One of the mediums and one of the extra larges are spares, and it would take 12 hours of crew time to configure them. So not only is that delaying the the walk for 12 hours split over two days, that's also delaying everything else that those astronauts would be doing. It does seem to be a particularly busy time up there. Not that they're not always busy, mm-hmm. but <laughs> right. exceptionally so. And then Delta V also points out that um, we have resupply vehicles coming up to station. And so um, that's going to add on to the workload. And so it is, it is really important to get this this EVA done. So nobody, I don't think anybody's arguing that. And if they are just brush them off and accept that they're angry about something else and it's coming out mm-hmm. in the incorrect way. But uh, but yeah, so it's almost like somebody uh, who uses a wheelchair trying to access a bank and they can't go through the front doors. They need to, you know, cash a check or whatever. And so they have to go uh, through a torturously long route to be able to get into the bank. And you could say, well, making that routing choice was important. Like you need to get into the bank. That's how you're going to do it. Correct. The problem is why didn't the bank build uh, accessible entrance ways to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're dealing with here is we as a nation don't give NASA enough money. That's right. That's a thing. But also NASA has a long history of not building systems that are adapted to women and uh, adapted to you know small men as well. Um, although, you know, obviously women skew smaller. And in general, when you say smaller spacesuits, you're talking about spacesuits for women. And this is a historical issue. I mean, Sally Ride, when she was getting ready to go to space as the first American woman, the mission planners were asking, you know, they were beginning to plan mass allocations. And they said, okay, so you're going to need some menstrual products. Um, are 100 tampons enough for the week that you're going to be up there? And like, that was a legitimate question. Um, One of the reasons that we didn't send women to the moon was because we couldn't design urine collection systems for them because the engineers simply didn't know what that urine collection system would look like. And it's one of those things where diversity benefits every single type of group. Not only is a diverse astronaut core beneficial, if for nothing else other than the fact that women tend to be lower mass and mean that you can put more cargo in a vehicle, um, which is like the least reason to include women in your astronaut corps. But having women on the engineering teams is super important because it allows you to adapt to so many more uh, issues that an all-male team is just not going to foresee. So let me step off my soapbox. Thank you very much. I agree with you (laughs) entirely on this. Um, One thing I noticed was that the reporting was a little, was bad. 
I thought. I thought they, mm. the headlines I saw from The Guardian in particular and a tweet from Politico basically oversimplified what was going on. And so then people unfamiliar with, you know, mm -hmm. spacesuits and how they work and just what the situation is made it seem like they were justifiably upset about it. Now, it yeah. turns out that this, the way I, I, my take on this is that this was a case where, like you said, NASA didn't have, you know, two options and decided to go with the more sexist uh, one. Instead, <laughs> right. this right. situation just highlighted the broader yes. environment and the broader problems with gender equity in STEM, NASA, beyond everywhere. And so people are justifiably pissed off because this is an issue. The fact that who knows when we will have our all female spacewalk next, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that we're talking about it in the first place highlights this broader issue. It would seem to me that the reason why, because I didn't know this much about spacesuits before, actually. Mm. So each suit has, it has all these different sizes. So does that mean then that you could make more suits out of the other parts? I guess not, because there's things that are just, you know, common for all different sizes like which i guess would be like the actual plus right like mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. part is like universal so yeah. you have to have that so actually you should be saying that, that there's like six of those and then there's just a bunch of other spare parts that you can put together to make your own custom spacesuit yeah. i'm guessing that the reason why it is the way it is is because you know it has been like mostly men who have flown in space and so they are still skewed in that direction mm -hmm. so they have to adapt and get more hardware up there they can accommodate everybody and that's pretty much yeah i mean I, I guess you pretty much said it that they just have to you know fix that because it does throw a kink into things because let's say that you had two people who needed a particular size and you couldn't accommodate that well that's kind of an issue which i guess i'm guessing that most people wear large then because if you just have one operational medium and the other is a backup then that must mean that it's very rare that you would have two people who wear that size but i don't know how big it, that actually the, is the spacesuits are not Cap, they're not stored in a configured uh, condition. Mm -hmm. So no matter no matter what change you're doing from one size to another, you're going to have to reconfigure a new spacecraft or a new spacesuit. Uh, spacecraft is also applicable. Mm -hmm. So it's how much time you have to to make that change is the issue. Not I mean you're not going to configure two spacesuits for the same person if it takes twelve people hours, 12 hands-on hours to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you had two people who needed a medium size, and I'm assuming that that, that specifically is talking about uh, the upper torso section, right. that's what like is meant by medium. <laughs> How uncommon is that? Because I would think that that's pretty common that you'd have two people who would need that size. But yeah, so then you not. would configure both of right. them each to the individual person. Right. Right. That's, it's... But they didn't do that in this case. And so I'm just wondering, like, that must come up fairly often that you need two people who need a medium because isn't that what we have here in this case yes but the issue was just that this this was something that snuck up on them was the issue if they they could have had the two mediums configured if they knew you know cook and mclean both wanted the mediums the problem was is that like ben had mentioned mclean was first thinking you know a large fitter better and it probably did on the ground but not in orbit and so that's why when yeah. she and Haig were on the first spacewalk she felt like this was too big. I would much prefer a medium for the next one, the one with Cook. But that medium wasn't prepped because, again, they had were thinking they were under the impression she was going to be using the large upper torso. And so she's a good example of somebody who's right between the two sizes, you know, where in the pool she needs one and in space she needs another. And it's like. Uh, this stuff is so expensive. You know? Yeah, <laughs> we need a, it, it's time for a new spacesuit design. Is is oh, yeah, my for conclusion. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, 
Na- NASA's conclusion as well. They just don't have the cash for it. That sounds like something cool that could be, and I think that there are private companies who are working on that, right? Like they could be passed off to them and then they could sell that to NASA. Um, wouldn't that be awesome if you could design a really good, you know, EVA suit? Yeah. yeah. There is development on these sort of next generation suits, but like we're still not there. So two more things I'd like to mention. Uh, Laura Forchuk on Twitter, I will uh, include a link, uh, gave some really good examples of um, how bad the sizing situation is with uniforms that are not as expensive as EMUs, right? An EMU, you can kind of forgive not being super adaptable, but Laura actually, she she's a small person and going through a bunch of different organizations where she had to wear, you know, official jumpsuits. She was having to wear children's sizes because the adult sizes were too big for her. <laughs> and sometimes they just didn't have a size that fit her. And so she was having to, you know, roll up her sleeves and her, and her pant legs and using safety pins to keep them in place, which is not safe when you're bouncing around in zero G, you know, on, on zero G flights. So like, mm-hmm. if you're listening to, to me ramble on about this and thinking, well, it really comes down to money. Don't forget that this is a systemic issue that happens in all of aerospace. And it is an issue because it does not cost that much to make a jumpsuit. Um, right. Yeah. And then the other thing is, um, this is potentially, I mean, uh, NASA knows that it, it sucks to, to have, um, a hut that doesn't fit you, but a couple of studies actually showed, and I'm going to say this, don't believe it yet. Right. Huh. A couple of studies show that there are actually a higher incidence of shoulder surgery in people who have done more EVAs, but that may or may not actually be true because it looks like if you factor in or if you control for other risk factors, um, the effect actually disappears. So that that may not actually be true, but you know potentially not having a hard upper torso or not having a spacesuit that is you know particularly ergonomic could actually be harmful to anybody wearing it, not just the people who you know, don't necessarily fit properly. Just something to keep in the back of your mind. Don't go spouting that out because it, it may not be true, but it's it's something to keep in mind. It wouldn't surprise me if it was something that happens to everyone because it's such difficult work. I mean, I don't think any, I don't think anyone can really appreciate just how grueling it is to, you know, do an EVA. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you're fighting that thing the whole time, and you have to be in really good shape. And I can see how you would throw your shoulder. Throwing your shoulder is getting in and out of it because you have to contort yourself to be able to get your arms high enough above your head to slip out. Okay, of it. but doing EVAs is just yeah, it's hellish. It's mm-hmm. it's really hard work. Yeah, I don't know how people. People don't injure themselves more often is i guess what i'm trying to say i'm sure i'm sure they come out of it with bruises i mean mm-hmm. like under your arms especially because you're you know reaching around this thing yeah so uh this is they will be reconfiguring that other medium uh, mclean will be using it on april 8th when she goes and does an eva with saint jacques this is a long series of EVAs. It's three or four. I don't remember. They might have been able to cut out the fourth one with get-ahead tasks already, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think three is the number I keep seeing. Okay. Or at least if there's the fourth, I missed it. The, the fourth might be a contingent, or it might be a figment of my imagination. It's hard to tell these days. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to short and sweet. What's our first one, Dennis? Well, we have the first image of a piece of a Vulcan rocket 
has been revealed. An image of a rocket panel was tweeted by ULA Chief Executive Tori Bruno, which he said was being cut and formed for the Vulcan Centaur rocket's fuel tanks and is a piece of actual first flight hardware. This progress has happened in conjunction with ULA's procurement of B4 engines from Blue Origin and its decision to reuse 40 to 60% of the software from its Atlas and Delta rockets, keeping it on track for a 2021 Vulcan launch. Next up, Mars helicopter hovers. The Mars helicopter, which is scheduled to fly with the Mars 2020 rover on its journey to the Red Planet, was successfully flight tested under Martian conditions by means of a vacuum chamber pumped with a thin CO2 atmosphere and a gravity offload system or a motorized lanyard used to reproduce the roughly one-third Earth gravity on Mars. The helicopter hovered for a total of one minute at an altitude of two inches. Its next flight will be on Mars, where it will lift off from the Jezero crater in early 2021. Jezero? Jezero? It's both Jezero or Yezero. There's two ways you can pronounce it. I'll go with Jezero. I think the Europeans probably do the Y version. And finally, India performs an ASAT. On March 27th, India destroyed one of its own satellites in a demonstration of ASAT capability. The satellite that was destroyed was most likely Microsat-R, which is a military imaging satellite launched in January of this year. The altitude of the satellite was around 300 kilometers, which luckily means that the orbital debris created will quickly deorbit within the next few weeks. Nonetheless, this exercise has been condemned by many as an irresponsible act in the domain of space that threatens its long-term stability. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And uh, how do you want to do this? Well, I, we we uh, inspired our first fan art, which is like crazy. Um, so my buddy over at uh, Lacrimastro, um, he actually does a Luthery channel uh, on YouTube. Yeah, which is a good channel. As someone who's tried to put together his own electric guitar, I'm not going to attempt this with you know acoustics. I don't. Have that skill level, but I'll happily mod a Telecaster. But that's as far as I go. <laughs> uh, so uh, he he's over on YouTube at T Woodford, uh, T W O O D F R D. He builds well. He he builds and fixes guitars professionally, which is really cool. Anyway, uh, so he was listening to our back catalog, and I believe he was listening to episode nine, uh, where we were talking about radiation in space. And uh, he drew a delightful three-panel comic, uh, The Adventures of Space Skull, uh, because uh, there was that one experiment where uh, they put a human skull into space on a shuttle to measure how much radiation was getting through the skull. And uh, yeah, it's huh. it's cool. Uh, space Skull is awesome. <laughs> and now we have some really nice art of it. Cool. Isn't that great? I was just so thrilled when I saw it. I was like, oh, yay, it's Space Skull. I'm looking forward to Space Skull's future adventures. <laughs> Let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. We got two launches and a couple other things. First up on April 4th is a Soyuz 2.1A. That is the Progress MS-11 or the 72P mission, I guess, depending on your designation that you want to go with. And that is launching at 11.01 and 35 seconds UTC. That looks to be an instantaneous launch window. Yes. That's from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And um, this is a Progress resupply mission, and it will bring supplies and fuel to the International Space Station. So, yep, you know how that works. Well, and then uh, the docking, the rendezvous and docking will be aired on NASA TV or covered on NASA TV. The cover begins at 9.45. The docking is scheduled at 10.25 a.m. 
uh, Eastern time for both of those, obviously. And so April 4th is a very busy day because <laughs> later that same day, uh, another Soyuz will launch. We'll have a Soyuz STB uh, launching with an upper stage frigate, which will be taking uh, the O3B uh, satellites FM-17 through FM-20. And so these are four... Uh, telecommunication satellites that belong to a larger constellation. The launch will take place at 163037 UTC with an instantaneous launch window and in this time it will be launching from the Soyuz launch complex in Kourou, uh, Cinemary, where I only learned recently the Cinemary, that's uh, where the actual pad itself is. It's actually mm -hmm. out, it's far enough from the control center in Kourou. Anyway, that's uh, happening April 4th, and we have more April 4th news. We also have, on April 4th, the Parker Solar Probe will begin its second solar encounter, where it will reach perihelion on the 4th. Uh, the whole solar encounter phase will last uh, until April 10th. All instruments are nominal, and during the uh, closest approach, it will be out of contact with the Earth for a few days because... Um, uh, pointing issues. They want to make sure, obviously, the heat shield is, you know, protecting itself from the sun. And so this will bring it to a perihelion of about 15 million miles, um, which was how close it got during its last closest approach. And later this year in December, it will start its uh, the second of seven Venus gravity assists so that the future perihelions will be, I guess, the future perihelia will be even closer. Oh, perihelia. Good. Uh, perihelia. Yeah. Uh, did you hear that? Uh, the New York, uh, the New York Times style sheet now says that data is singular. Ugh. Oh no! <laughs> English is a living language. I gotta just whisper it to myself and breathe deeply. Uh, and then finally, on April eighth, will be uh, the next spacewalk. So this is going to be McLean and Saint Jacques. The coverage will begin at six thirty. The spacewalk is planned to begin at eight twenty, and it's going to be about a seven-hour EVA. And of course, uh, six a.m. is is Eastern time. Alrighty. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. So we will deorbit, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.